Thank you. Thanks, Mike. And um, yeah, no, really pleased to be here. You're right. Um, former directors of an organization always seem to develop a particularly acute interest in the history of their organization and the wider movement of which it's a part, of which it's just a part. And um, always think that history will be particularly relevant in helping to shape the decisions the organization takes in the present. I don't know why they think that, but they do. And certainly you've got a whole ton of ex-directors of Friends here who are absolutely conscious of that little story today. Um, I'm really sorry I was late. This is a ridiculous job to have been given. It would have been fine if I'd been here all day, but um, I unfortunately uh, only turned up for the final session. So thank you very much to Duncan McLaren for giving me quite a helpful insight into sessions uh, one, two, and three, which was really um, great. I was late because I was um, in Amsterdam at a meeting of the Round Table for Sustainable Palm Oil, which is an organization I currently find myself doing quite a lot of work with in a rather peculiar kind of way. And there was a sort of crazy moment uh, this morning where someone who was a founder of the Round Table, we're in a little group around a table talking about this stuff, and one of these founders said, we're 12 years old now, I wonder whether people will look back in the future and see the round table as an exercise in frustrated incrementalism or as an organization that successfully laid the foundations for transformational system-wide change. I thought to myself, you ought to be over in London right now <laughs> talking to this bunch of people about precisely that question because in a way there's a heightened consciousness that we are making history as we go with a lot of this stuff. So when I was coming over, obviously all I could do was read the abstracts for the sessions that I was going to miss. The plane was late, which is why I missed three sessions rather than two. And I was thinking to myself, there's quite a lot of raw material here that one might latch onto as a way of giving ourselves some kind of comfort about the importance of history in seeing what our role is today. I tried to tease out what might be described as transformational analogies things that have been presented to you here today, perhaps through the story of the abolition of slavery, perhaps through the campaigns around air pollution or women's suffrage, that you can draw down from those analogies and say, you know what, there's quite a lot there that we could feed into our own models of transformation today. A lot of supportive narratives in terms of the things that have been surfaced today. The whole story about how cities have at different times acted as a very powerful antidote to or a, a way of counter-commanding the, the story of the nation-state, the rise of municipal civic activism, the importance of NGOs. These are all hugely support, na supportive narratives for what we're trying to do today. But obviously some very important cautionary tales, and I was struck by one comment from Catherine Flynn Goldie's abstract where she said, planning does not create reality. Um, that's quite a sobering thought, but maybe with this government, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> so I was trying to tease out all of that stuff, and it is really interesting, because I was thinking to myself, as you're heading towards your drink, and you're going to be on schedule, spot on, with the drink, do you feel emboldened, empowered, by what you've heard today, in whatever role you might have as change agents? Because I suspect everybody here today is, in one way or another, a change agent in the work that you're doing. Do you feel emboldened in that by these rather um, diffuse, if not eclectic, 
historical excursions that you've been given access to today? Has it kind of strengthened your sense of yourself as a change agent right now at this particular point? Now, maybe that's a totally unreasonable expectation to have or question to ask, because after all, all you've really heard from today are 12, obviously extraordinarily eminent, but nonetheless very contestable academic historical voices. And I say contestable because, of course, they would be the first to say, well, that's just my view. Of course, the next academic along might challenge that and change it completely. And I was very struck by that phenomenon when I went to a seminar about the Magna Carta on Monday this week, and it was really quite an entertaining experience for me because what I was confronted by with the different speakers there looking at the 800 years of how the Magna Carta has been interpreted at different points in English history, the only way I could describe it was pervasive partisan proprietorialism because everybody wanted to lay claim to that bit of the Magna Carta or that interpretation of the Magna Carta or that mythology around the Magna Carta, the best served their cause and their particular interest. So you had everybody doing this kind of little picking this bit out and that stuff and so on and so forth in order to demonstrate that this was something that we really could draw down on to reinforce the various things that we're concerned about. So it was good for me in the final session to hear from Paul, from Paul Ward, three things that, about our energy system which are really quite important. Firstly, there's no such thing as business as usual. Well, thank God for that, because otherwise we're buggered. Secondly, almost all predictions are wrong. That's exceptionally helpful when you think about DEC and BP and other people in the energy world today. And thirdly, relatively rapid change on a decadal scale is part of that longer-term energy story. That's three very encouraging things. I'm just trying to find some encouraging things to send you away with, okay. And that was in my mind, listening to that talk, because I've just finished reading Nick Stern's new book. It's nearly a decade since Nick Stern wrote the Stern Review, a sort of really significant contribution to the debate about climate change, establishing much of the basic arguments about the economics of climate change. And one decade on, he's written this book under the excellent title, Why Are We Waiting? I like it when academic historians or economists or whatever it might be adopt a populist approach to getting their material across to people. It's a really good book. It is really good. But disappointingly for all of you, the section towards the end where he looks for historical precedents and analogies to demonstrate that the kind of change we're going to need to address accelerating climate change is the weakest chapter in the book. It's almost as if he'd run out of enthusiasm for or energy to find powerful analogies in the historical record. And he defaults to things like seatbelts and smoking. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, wait a minute, those really aren't going to cut it when you look at the scale of the change that we're talking about today to address accelerating climate change. And I thought that maybe David Edgerton got us a bit closer to that today by talking about some of the massive changes going on in England during the Second World War. Interestingly for us in the climate change world, 
the analogy or the example they use is not so much the UK history of the Second World War, but the US history of the Second World War, with some campaigners talking about where is the equivalent of the Pearl Harbor moment? A very powerful suggestion that up until that point in the Second World War, the Americans really and truly just wanted to have nothing to do with that story going on in Europe. But suddenly, the attack on Pearl Harbor changed all of those perspectives. And within literally six months, or maybe nine months, the entire industrial apparatus of the United States had been converted from producing products, cars, and washing machines for the benefit of the US citizenry to producing weapons of war. And there is one rather astonishing statistic there that not one private motor car was produced in the USA between Pearl Harbor and the end of the war. And I love that because it sort of shows that under stress, maybe we can really do this. But Nick Stern didn't refer to the Pearl Harbor moment. He chose to look elsewhere. Happily, he went straight into the question about China and India because you know there is something a little bit comfortable about our theories of change going on today, our historical take on this stuff. If you're in China, you tend to look at change and history rather differently. As Nick Stern says, do not underestimate the capacity of the Chinese to take the leadership in the world today on climate change. And one of the principal reasons why they will do that is because China does not think like a country in a particular micro period of time, China thinks of itself as a civilization, able to respond to things in a completely different way with a totally different perspective on history. So no one would have to apologize for going back a few centuries because in China they're perfectly happy to go back millennia to explain what it is that might be about to happen to us today. So thank you for the chance to listen to all of that. As George very powerfully said at the end, whatever your theory is about the contribution of history to this change process, we know one thing for sure. It is completely dependent on organizations and individuals continue to do, continuing to do the things that we know have to be done to make these change processes really work. And the more we can learn about the role of those progressive individuals, progressive organizations, and factor that into our sense, our own theories of change, I suspect the better prepared we'll be. So thank you.